You know, I think every once in a while, it's a good thing to um, just draw attention to people who faithfully serve the Lord. We've done that first this morning with Kay Swartz, and uh, for my part, uh, what, what, what we'll always cherish is that Kay was Sunday school teacher to two of my children, and uh, that's, that's the case because she faithfully served the Lord late into life. And so they had the blessing of having you as their teacher. We have a picture with each of them with you that they will always cherish. Uh, it is so wonderful to, to be blessed by people like Kay. And I also, uh, if you don't know, the man that plays the drums, his name is Bill Fenton. And, uh, and he, he would not like attention being drawn uh, to him this morning. Uh, but I think he's out of the room, so that's okay. And um, I got to tell you, as far as, as far as drummers go... I don't know. I don't know if you know you ever noticed, but uh, you can just tell Bill is worshiping as he does it, and I was just really encouraged by that this morning, especially in that first song. Uh, you know, he he really gets going, and he is passionate about what he does. It reminds me of a legend that I heard once, and I, it may have originated at Cedarville. I could be wrong um, at Cedarville University, where where I went to college. But uh, there was this story about a. You know, when, when Christian music started uh, incorporating those drums every once in a while, and uh, now this might sound a little stereotypical, and perhaps for that reason it's not true, but the way the legend goes is there was a little old lady there who heard those drums being played and was a little perturbed by it, and so she waited till the uh, service was over, and she approaches the drummer and says, you know, son, the devil's in those drums, and his response was, I know, ma'am, I've been trying to bang him out ever since. I'm like, you know, that's Bill, man. You know, he's just, he's, he's wailing away passionately for the glory of God. I appreciate the kinds of people we mentioned this morning. And, I, and, and the Lord's church has just, uh, just received such a blessing from those who faithfully serve him. This morning, we're in Acts chapter 10. And um, Pastor Scott last week shared with you from the first half of this chapter, and I have the honor of of, of uh, spending some time with you in the second half of it. Before we engage the text, I thought we'd pray. And for our prayer this morning, I thought I'd simply offer a prayer once prayed by Charles Spurgeon, perhaps when he reflected upon this same text. Before I do that, though, when we sometimes incorporate older prayers, and, and um, as far as it's amazing to consider this, but this is, Charles is now probably in the category of ancient um, he uh, sometimes uses language that's not part of our common vernacular, and, uh, and, and he uses a word in this prayer where he asks God to come with his sacred nard. Uh, I don't know the last time you dropped that in conversation, but what he's referring to there is a, uh, a plant from which you could derive an herb that was used for medicinal purposes, and what he's asking for then is God to bring his healing. And uh, so with that in mind, I, I, I hope that by starting our morning together, Charles' prayer will be an encouragement to us and help, help to fix our hearts and minds upon God and his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are some who are wounded, broken hearts that seek peace, men and women, like Cornelius, that want to hear the words which God commands. O come, divine physician, and bind up every broken bone. Come with your sacred nard, which you have compounded of your own heart's blood, and lay it home to the wounded conscience, and let it feel its power. 
Oh, give us peace. Give peace to those whose conscience is like the troubled sea, which cannot rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you'll notice that the title of this message is Irreconcilable Differences with the IR Crossed Out, and that hopefully will make more sense by the time we're done. Uh, but the short story is, that's what Jesus does. So he crosses those first two letters out. The way in which he does it is miraculous and marvelous and wonderful, and I hope that we're all edified and challenged by it this morning. Before we engage the text, I want to share with you a story about a concerned neighbor. I don't know if any of you caught this over the last week, but it goes like this. Sometimes all you can do is get down on your knees and thank God over and over again. An Ohio woman saved a family of 11 when she knocked on their front door in the middle of the night to let them know their home was on fire. Haley Moss is seen on the Ring security doorbell camera at Josh Ellis and Brittany Downing's home at 1.06 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Moss bangs on the door and yells, your garage is on fire, and continues to knock and ring the doorbell. The man Josh Ellis told local news networks that 11 people were in the home, including nine children. And you can watch the video, and you can see her not stop until somebody answers that door. And you, even as she does it, you can see the smoke billowing out of the garage behind her. And you can just see the desperation on her face. Convinced people are in the home and, do, and doing everything that she can to wake them up. I want you to have that in your minds this morning as we work through this text. And we'll circle back to it as we close our time together. But let's talk about this visit, shall we? quite a momentous one. And the question that I believe this text answers pretty straightforwardly is this, what is Peter's message to Cornelius and what was the result for those who heard it? And so as we learned from last week, Cornelius, a Roman, of course a Gentile, centurion, receives a vision from the Lord prompting him to send for the apostle Peter, send servants to Peter's house and knowing the cultural issues of Gentiles and Jews, not necessarily associating together, let alone being in each other's houses. The servants actually remain outside of Peter's immediate property until they're welcomed in by Peter. Peter's ready to do that because he himself receives a vision from the Lord in, during which God says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And we're going to learn today how Peter understood that. And it's going to be critical to what unfolds in this story. And so we pick up in verse 23. And what we need to understand about this visit are the extraordinary circumstances that surround it. So in verse 23, it says, So he invited them in to be his guest, that's Peter, to Cornelius' servants. And then the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Pause there for a second. I'm not going to hit on this too hard because the text doesn't. I'm just saying that as I was reading and rereading and looking at this text, uh, Joppa was standing out to me and I was like, goodness sakes, why is that? Why is Joppa standing out to me? And then I realized it's probably because we also hear about the city of Joppa in the story of Jonah. 
And what's interesting, again, I'm not going to hit on this too hard because the text doesn't, but I find it a fascinating contrast between Jonah and Peter. And I find there to be a great deal of similarities in their circumstances, but also uh, certain differences that are important. So for those of you who know the story of Jonah, Old Testament prophet of God called basically bring the truth of God's word to the enemies of the Jews. Peter, not too dissimilarly, is being asked to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to who would have been understood as an enemy of the Jewish people. Also to set the context for this visit, they've already been dealing with the ramifications of stories being spread that a person who basically embodies Jewish elite oppression against the Christian church has now become a believer. They knew him as Saul, and now they're supposed to call him Paul. And not only are they supposed to welcome him as a brother in Christ, this former accuser and murderer of Jesus' church, but they're supposed to follow him as a leader. Just think about that for a second. How, how would you swallow that pill? You have friends and family members that were hauled off to prison or worse by this very same person that God says is now your brother and you need to follow his teaching. I don't think it'd be so easy. And I don't get the sense that it was easy for the Jewish people or even the disciples. In fact, you'll, you'll see later on that Peter himself, among the others, would, would ha have some cause for concern here and it would take the ministry of Barnabas to convince them that this Paul guy is legit. And so they're already digesting this. You see what I'm saying? And part of what they're digesting is this. It's Jesus' church, not theirs. And he's going to do with his church what he wants to do with it. We don't get to make the church of Jesus Christ into our image. He makes his church into his image. And part of his plan for his church is to take it to places the Jewish people never expected. And I think he does the same today. So this is an extraordinary set of circumstances going on for Peter in this visit. Verse 24, And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshipped him. Now don't, don't take this as, as that he's worshipping him as that he were some sort of god or idol. This is language being used that means he was really just showing Peter some great respect and reverence. Even so... Verse 26, Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Now, I just think this is important. Because of the cultural ethnic issues going on here at this time, that initial response by Peter meant everything. We're equal. Now, Jews aren't supposed to mix with Gentiles, Gentiles with Jews. There, there probably was some sentiment among Jewish believers of being better than these Gentile people, particularly these Roman people, Romans who not only oppress us, but murdered our Savior. And for Peter to say what he said, it was a pretty momentous occasion. I mean, causing rip, a ripple effect in town, I'm sure. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered and he said to him, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Well, there's our answer. The vision that Peter was given really had nothing to do with meat or food. 
but people. And it was God saying, you do not call people unclean if I call them clean. Translation, I'm going to build my church how I want to build it. And I have designs for it that will include many people unlike you. Not just ethnically, but all manner of differences that we can come up with today. And so, verse 29, when I was sent for, I came without objection. Just contrast that to Jonah, right? I mean, you could art Peter's the better Jonah here, right? I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Well, what we learn next is that it's a desire to hear. Verse 30, and Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of another Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, what an invitation. And not only is there this earnest desire to hear the word of God, but do you already see the evangelistic spirit coming up within Cornelius? Was it just him and his immediate family? There were many who were gathered there, probably as surprising to Peter as anyone else. I'm not entirely sure Peter expected a large audience. But now he has one. And you, you think for a minute, why does Peter have this grand opportunity? Because he obeyed. He obeyed. To go to people who were different than him. He obeyed. And now he has this amazing opportunity and platform to share God's truth. What is that message? This is the highlight of the text. What's interesting is that Peter's going to give this miniature sermon, but the, the, this mini-sermon is going to contain all the necessary points. I mean, it's wonderful what God has done through this man who once couldn't keep his foot out of his own mouth, and now the, he, he's, he's succinct, he's eloquent, he's poignant. It's amazing what God can do with a person. It's also interesting that if, if you remember from time that we've spent in, in the Gospel of Mark, that some speculate that Mark may have gotten much of his information for his narrative from Peter. Now, to, to possibly substantiate that, or this could just be incidental, the sequence of the bullet points of Peter's message almost perfectly align with Mark's, if you compare them. It's really interesting. But Peter's going to share this message. Let's see what he has to say. In verses 30, 34 to 35, he says, so, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God shows no partiality. In other words, God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't play that game. And what, what we have to admit this morning is, as you know, human beings in our, in our fallenness and with our battles against our sin nature, that we are so inclined to focus on the differences we have with other people. And it doesn't just have to be ethnic as what's taking place in this, but all manner of differences, personality differences, uh, philosophical differences, political differences. But God doesn't have favorites. 
And he doesn't show prejudice based on these kinds of things that we often separate ourselves into our own camps over. He breaks through all of that. You see, when we, when we determine that the differences must be irreconcilable through Jesus, they become reconcilable, no matter what those differences are. God shows no partiality. As we move on into verses 36 to 38, he says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. We'll stop there, and what he's doing is now uh, articulating Jesus' identity. He's Lord. This Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed one. He is Lord. He goes on in the second half of verse 38 and says, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He then very succinctly describes Jesus' ministry as doing good. That was Jesus. Everywhere he went, doing good. To people, for people, on behalf of people, it was a ministry of goodness. He goes on in verse, the first part of verse 39. He says, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. This good ministry of Jesus was witnessed. First-hand witness testimony is one of the dis- one of many, but one of the distinct features of the Christian faith with compared uh, compared with other major belief systems in the world. You have men who wrote and said we were there. We saw him do these things. We saw him heal people. We saw him bring people back to life. Some of us were at the wedding where he turned water into wine. We saw him walk on water. His ministry was witnessed. It's an important point, which is probably why, through the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter makes it. Second half of verse 39, he says, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So now he speaks of Jesus' death. And what you're noticing here, right, is he's sharing the gospel. And these are all important points in sharing the gospel. And there's no way around the fact that we have to articulate the death of Jesus. The way in which he does it is interesting. Using the phrase, by hanging him on a tree, makes one think, if he knew, and probably did, well, Old Testament scholarship and the biblical writers, that there was the pronunciation that he who's hanged on a tree is is cursed. And it was a curse that Jesus took upon himself, became sin, he who knew no sin. To pay the price for others by hanging on that tree. He goes on and says in verse 40, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. There's so much here in such a short uh, short text, okay? First of all, he, he talks about Jesus' resurrection. Without it, we have nothing. Paul said, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are of most people to be pitied in this world. Because everything we're doing and believing would be empty, vain, meaningless, fruitless, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We are so blessed and fortunate to be a people gathered in this room who serve a risen Savior. But not only is there a claim to his resurrection, but there's also a claim that his resurrection was witnessed. Again, people were there. They saw him. They met with him. And he, you find it interesting, right? I find it interesting. He, he, of this, this grand moment, precious minutes he has to preach this little sermon to Cornelius and others who were there, he mentions the fact that they ate and drank with him after his resurrection. But the wonderful thing about God including that is it argues against the false notion that Jesus' resurrection was simply spiritual rather than physical. Jesus walked out of that grave in a physical body. What purpose would a spirit have for eating and drinking? And I love, right, that we also have that wonderful story with Thomas. You know, a lot of us are needlessly harsh with Thomas. In fact, we, we as his uh, Christians, a Christian, you know, and, you know, he's our ancestor and we're spiritually his offspring or whatever. We've even given him the moniker Doubting Thomas. But if you remember, what Thomas had was questions, right? When the, when the disciples said, he's alive, we're telling you, he's resurrected from the dead, what did Thomas say? Until I put my fingers in the holes in his hand and thrust my hand, the hole in his side that was made by the spear, I'm not going to believe it. And we're like, oh, shame on you, Thomas. I happen to think Thomas was being precisely who God created him to be, a man of questions. And when Jesus comes to see Thomas, you remember this? Jesus did not start with, Shame on you. Why didn't you believe like these guys did? You remember what Jesus did? Go ahead, Thomas. I know it's what you need. Go ahead. And Thomas did. And Thomas was like, my Lord, my God. You know, Jesus can take the hard questions. And I just want to pause here and just, just, just remind everybody of that. I mean, of, of many things, my desire is that Delaware Bible Church is a place that comes to be known by people in, in the community as a safe place and a strong enough place to handle people's hard questions. Jesus can take it. If you're sitting here today and you have those questions, it's okay. Share those questions. Don't leave with those questions unshared. Sean McDowell once said, that there are two types of questions, questions looking for answers and questions looking for exits. If you have questions in search of answers, share them here. And I hope if you've come to any person in this church with those questions, they'll be glad to receive you. And if they don't have the answer, the response is going to be, let's find out together. He could take the questions. But nonetheless, his resurrection was real, physical, and it was witnessed. He goes on in verse 42, it says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So we have Jesus' command. The Great Commission. I mean, goodness, Peter has now just made more briefly summarized the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. Take this story to the uttermost parts of the earth, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody, that's what's happening in this moment. 
Jesus is expanding his church. And here's the thing. I, I understand, and it's probably appropriate to do so, that when we hear the phrase to the uttermost parts of the earth, we think geographic. But I also think in this moment in time, it was also ethnic. And what Peter was doing by going to Cornelius' house, this might as well have been the uttermost parts of the earth. That the good news is now for these people, first, the man who was one of our brethren that murdered and arrested our brothers and sisters is now one of us and one of our leaders. But now it's going to a man who embodies Roman pagan oppression of God's church. Yeah. Jesus is going to do with his church what he wants to do with his church. It's not for us to make in our own image. It's for him to make in his own. What an amazing thing. And I could see people, I could see Peter, right? I mean, I just could see him thinking, this is the edge of the earth right here. As far as he ever thought he'd go to share the gospel with these people. And look at the amazing things that happened because he did. Lastly, he says in verse 43, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Aren't you thankful for that? Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe that God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. There is forgiveness for sin through Jesus Christ. And so Peter has shared the gospel. It didn't take him long, did it? It wouldn't take us long either. You need a template? Here you go. If a rough around the edges former fisherman could pull this off, any one of us can, I wonder if that's exactly why God chose him to do it. Of all the apostles he could have chosen, it's Peter. So what was the result? What a wonderful result it is. Peter does his job, which is our job. Plant the seed, right? Plant and water, plant and water. So he plants the seed of the gospel, and then Jesus takes over. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying, while Peter was still saying these things, I mean, it's like, you know, Jesus didn't even let him finish, right? I'm just going to go ahead and take over, Peter. You've done well. It's my turn now. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. You sense it even in that phrase? Who would have thought the gospel was for them? So the result number one, salvation and the Spirit came to those who heard. And I love this. I love that it happened and that it was recorded. Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It's a rhetorical question, right? As much as we might want to, we can't get in the way here. Jesus has done a thing and it's for us to obey 
The next step has to be baptism. We need to get these folks baptized. The Holy Spirit has come. And not only is there a claim that the Holy Spirit has come, but there's a demonstration that he did, right? And sometimes because of our curiosity and the, the debates that can surround the gift of speaking in tongues, it can detract from what I think is actually the main thing going on here, which is that people just got saved and their salvation was manifested through the work of the Holy Spirit. Proving. There's no doubt now, no room for doubt that salvation occurred in that house. And so baptism comes next. It's also a great thing for me. There's, again, there's a lot of differences sometimes in theological communities. But you try to juxtapose this, right? You try to place this right next to some of the notions that are out there. One of them being that one must be baptized to be saved. That didn't occur. Salvation came and then baptism was done out of obedience. But then there's also a notion out there of sometimes what's called two-stage conversion, that, that you get the, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, but then through baptism, he fills you and, and starts to give you spiritual gifts and make himself manifest in your life. That didn't happen here either. The work of the Holy Spirit was manifest in these people's lives before they were dunked in the water. Baptism is a wonderful thing. It's a thing we do out of obedience. And if you haven't done it for yourself, I'd encourage you to not just consider it, but to act upon it. But it does not save you. And it's not something that merits you or grants you the Holy Spirit. If you're a brother or sister in Christ because you've, you've, you've confessed Jesus as Lord and your faith in his resurrection, the Bible says you are saved. And when you are saved, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And you can be equipped for the good works that God has called you to do, Ephesians 2.10. Be confident in that. And so we see that those who were added to the church were baptized. And here we're at the end of our text. There's a couple questions I want to ask you, and then I'd like to share a few things with you as a matter of encouragement and consideration as we conclude our time together this morning. My first question for you is this. Have you responded in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ? It should never be assumed that just because you're sitting in a room like this one, gathered with people like some of us are, that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you know, you know it's true that you have not confessed that, that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, Put your faith and trust that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin by dying on the cross and coming back from the dead. My heart's desire for you is that today, I, we, we, we prayed already this morning before the services ever started, that today would be the day, day of salvation for those of you who are here that haven't confessed Jesus as Lord. And if you sense that he's prompting you to do that, your heart is convicted by what you've heard this morning. Act upon that this morning. The elder who prayed for us this morning, Phil, will be here in front, not, not to draw attention to you, but when the service is closed and people go on their way, it's, it's an example of us being willing to meet with you and pray with you and answer the questions that you have. Don't leave without acting upon that this morning. The second question I have for you is this. Are you sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have been adopted into the family of God, this is non-negotiable. It's job one. And we should never think for a second that some of us are gifted in sharing Christ while others are not. This is something expected of us all. 
Are you sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others who need to hear it? And my question along the lines for you as you think about that is this. Who's your Cornelius? You might not have said it with your mouth, but by your conduct, you've concluded they're outside of the reach of God's grace. Not part of his design for his church. Written them off. Who's your Cornelius? A family member? A grown child who's wandered from the faith? A co-worker that's particularly annoying to you? An employer who's unfair? Perhaps it's a neighbor who seems to persistently invite his dog to treat your perfectly manicured yard as his own personal restroom. Who's your Cornelius? The, the truth of the matter is, a name's already crossed your mind. Already on your heart. What are you doing to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them? Yes, the good news is even for them. There's room at the cross for them. Pastor Scott referenced a verse in 2 Corinthians. I want to bring it to your attention again and encourage you to write this down. A bit of a full context for the idea of this being a ministry of reconciliation. That's what Jesus is doing. Reconciling all manner of differences. Making enemies into brothers. Ethnically, politically, and otherwise. And he does it today. And I commend that to your Bible study this week. I'm going to reference a man, not because uh, I believe that we'd be in doctrinal agreement with him, because we're not, but there's a wonderful prayer that was written by somebody, and some attributed to this man, while others aren't so sure, and it's called the Prayer of St. Francis. Prayer of St. Francis says this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Perhaps inspired by this, several years ago, a Christian group called the Paul Coleman Trito wrote a song called Instrument of Peace. In it, the chorus says this, Make me an instrument of your peace. Make me a vessel of your love. Make me a minister of reconciliation in this world. Make me a picture of your grace. Make me a portrait of your face. Make me a minister of reconciliation in this world. Friends, that's what we are to be. Portraits of the grace of God as people look into our life. Pictures, reflections of the character of Christ. Seeking to reconcile that which was once deemed to be irreconcilable. Because through him, 
these things can be possible. One way that I've been putting it with others lately is this. I believe that there's only one of two, two outcomes that occur when we engage another person. Outcome number one is that we lessen their distance, lessen the distance between them and Jesus. Outcome number two, we lengthen it. How do you engage others? Do you leave them closer to Christ or have you pushed them further away? When I was thinking about these things, I was wondering who, who would be a, a great picture of a minister of reconciliation as we think about whether or not we are. And I believe a great example is this woman. If you don't recognize her by her picture, her name is Elizabeth Elliot. And for those of you who don't know her story, I shared this in the first service, and a number of people actually came up to me and said they were unfamiliar with the story. So it affirmed that I should share it again. The story goes like this. Much loved and highly academic Jim Elliott arrived in Ecuador in 1952, age 24, with linguistic skills taught by former missionary to the Quechua people. His aim, along with a team of four other bright missionaries and their wives of his own age, was to continue evangelizing amongst the Quechua people. And in 1953, he married the woman he had agonized in prayer over for five years, fellow missionary Elizabeth. Between them, they translated the New Testament into the Quechua language. In 1955, Valerie, their daughter, was born in the Ecuador jungle. But family life didn't stop the next step of the mission. Their growing desire was to reach out to a tribe that was notorious for its barbarism. Any, out, any outsiders that entered their territory were never seen again. This tribe was called the Alcas, the Quechua word for savage. They lived and died by the spear, killing many of the Quechua tribes, causing the closure of an oil drilling company through killing several of its workers. They had no justice structure, and six in ten amongst the tribe itself were killed from their own people by the spear. After being in Ecuador now for four years, they had been praying for an opportunity and for God's leading to make contact with the Alcas, wanting to reach them with the light of the gospel. The Lord made a way, but it did not come cheap. After spotting some Alca houses when flying in their plane, a plan was made by the five brothers in Christ to fly over the Alca village and lower gifts from the plane to show friendship and peace. This went on for 13 weeks. With the gifts being received and the Alcas in return, fastening baskets of offerings to the rope dangling from the yellow plain. There was a small stretch of sandy beach near the Savage Tribe's village, and the men were able to land there one day and made contact in person. The exchange was friendly, confidence increased, and as the men returned back home that night in their plane and return trips were being planned. After one particular trip, however, the men were not to come back. After no radio contact for a night and a morning, alerts were sent out from the wives and news soon hit America. Broadcasts there swiftly put on the air calls for prayer over these five missing men who had entered savage territory. Searches were made, and the men were found floating in the river after being speared to death. The Alcas had been led to believe by one of their fellows that the foreigners were going to kill them. The wives and their children decided to stay. Just look at them for a moment. 
young babies in their hands, husbands murdered, but they understood something. They understood the call. They had their marching orders and it would not stop the mission. This is what reconciliation ministry looks like. These are portraits of the grace of God, instruments of peace. Valerie was just 10 months old. You have heard it was said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus in Matthew 5. They continued to live and work among the Quechuas when one day, by God's incredible working, two women from the Alka tribe came to live with Elizabeth. They learned the ways of God, and Elizabeth was able to start learning the Alka language. These two ladies were to provide a link to the Alkas. And by God's grace, Elizabeth was invited to live amongst the very tribe that had killed her husband just two years before. In 1958, along with Rachel Saint, Elizabeth and her three-year-old Valerie moved into a traditional house with the Alkas. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Jesus will build his church. After just two years, the homicide rate, just listen to this, after two years of gospel ministry, the homicide rate decreased 90%. As the tribe were taught that there is a trail that leads to life with an eternal home at the end, but those who would walk on it cannot murder. This destructive people confessed that had the missionaries not arrived, they would have killed each other off. Now they remain as a jungle tribe, but no longer living in darkness. The very men who killed the five young Christian men grew to be elders of faith in Jesus. You hearing echoes of Saul's story? It's an amazing thing. Hard men became tender and learned the ways of peace. The village was won over to Christ, a people group taken from the clutches of Satan into the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ. Elizabeth Elliot once said, God never withholds from his child that which his love and wisdom call good. God's refusals are always merciful. Severe mercies at times, but mercies all the same. God never denies us our heart's desire except to give us something better. That's a minister of reconciliation. Greg Steer founder of a ministry called Dare to Share, and who I believe to be one of the greatest evangelists of our current age, recently posted this on his social media platforms. Fall in love with evangelism and you'll fizzle out. 
fall in love with Jesus, and you will always evangelize. It's not the work, brothers and sisters. It's the person. The more we love him, the more we will tell others about him. The question today isn't so much, how much work are you doing for Jesus? But how much have you fallen in love with him? And then the work comes easy. Sometimes costly, but easy. Shared with you at the beginning of the morning about that concerned neighbor knocking on that house, ringing the doorbell, yelling to get the attention of the people inside because their house was on fire. Brothers and sisters, those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, their houses are on fire. And the worst news is they're sleeping through it. It'll take you and it'll take me. Hey, your house is on fire. And I don't know what that looks like for you. It could sound something like, could we get coffee sometime? Do you need help with that deck you're building out back? Would you like me to walk your dog for you? So that they could meet Jesus. In him and him alone is found eternal life. Before I pray for you, I'm going to do something very different. Uh, if you're sitting on an aisle seat or near an aisle seat, whoever you are, the nearest person to the aisle, there are slips of paper in the chair pocket. I'd like you to pull those out. And I'm mainly looking for the adults to participate here, but those of you who are older teenagers could as well with your parents' permission. But pass those down the aisle and make sure everybody gets a slip, please. I'll give you a moment. And then I have an elder equipped with extras. If you do not receive one and would like one, just lift your hand. So the back row, Mr. Fry could use some of those. Anyone else? Could we have, does anyone have an extra that we could have here and give to Kay in the second row here? One's coming back down to you. Anyone else? Oh, okay. And there's some others in the back there, Phil, as you turn around some of the last couple rows. Thank you, sir. And then, you know, husbands and wives, you can decide if you want to share one together. That's up to you. Let me now give you the instructions. You have three blank lines in front of you. Uh, if you haven't determined this by now, you'll need a, something to write with. So that's going to be another round, right? Who needs a pen? Uh, hopefully you have one or someone nearby does, or you can share. Maybe be mindful of others in the row that seem to need one. You have three blank lines. In the first line, I'd like you to write your name, first and last, please. First and last. Oh, and by the way, I've done this myself. First and last name. Second line, I'd like you to write the name of the person that you know needs to hear about Jesus. They've already hit your mind. 
most likely. Just write the name. Who needs to hear about Jesus? Family member, friend, coworker, neighbor? And first name would be sufficient for that. Line number three, I just don't sweat yet. Write your contact number. Go ahead. Area code first, please. So line number one, first and last name for yourself. Line number two, someone you know needs to hear about Jesus. Line number three, your contact number, starting with your area code. Now the next step is going to be up to you. I'm going to pray for you, but this is my challenge to you. We talk a lot about being brothers and sisters in Christ, talk a lot about praying for each other and wanting to encourage each other. And the Bible talks quite a bit about holding each other accountable, stirring each other up, right? As it says in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to challenge you to put meat on those bones this morning and give that slip of paper to someone else before you leave who's not in your family. Anyone. And if you don't know the person, even better. You know why? Because step number one could actually be, I don't know you, but maybe we could go out to coffee or breakfast sometime, or we could have your family over for dinner. We'll get to know each other, and we'll talk about the names we wrote on our slips. And then step two would be acting upon it. Give this paper, and I'm, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to need someone who's willing to come to me, who's not in my family, to take this slip of paper from me. And then here's the challenge person who gets this paper from somebody, call the number in one or two weeks and say, hey, how's your gospel ministry going to this person? How has it been going trying to reach out to them with the good news of Jesus Christ? How can I be praying for you as you continue that ministry of reconciliation? Brothers and sisters, you, you and I both know we, it's far too easy. And I ended this time saying, think about that name, pray about that name, and then go. And you and I both know how easy it is to never do anything about it. This is something you can do. Give it to somebody else. Ask them to give you a call and hold you accountable to sharing the gospel with that person. But that's going to be up to you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for teaching it to us this morning, reminding us of its principles. Thank you for how challenging it can be. Thank you for how it pierces our hearts and minds. Thank you for those who are present this morning that have heard the gospel shared clearly, not because I shared it, but because Peter did such a masterful job through your spirit sharing it. Thank you for Peter's example of obedience to your call to share the good news with those who were different than he was. And thank you that you extend that same call to us. 
and expect us to do the same. Thank you that you've reminded us of people this morning that, if we're to be honest, we've kept at arm's length. Thank you for the opportunities that, that you might have planned for us to, to engage that person or re-engage with them. And, and, and thank you that, that, that part of that might even include us saying, you know, I'm sorry. It's been far too long since we've connected with each other. And it's not been for good reasons. Thank you that the walls of differences that, that we as humans so often erect, whether it's based on ethnicity or politics or preferences, whatever, that you break those down as you build your church. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his ministry of goodness. Thank you for his atonement through his death on the cross. Thank you for the blood that was shed, for the price that was paid. Thank you for the salvation that's given through that sacrifice. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ. Thank you that our Savior is living, ever seeking to redeem many. Thank you for allowing us to be part of that reconciliation ministry. Thank you for being a God who uses the obedience of your people to do miraculous things in the lives of others. Thank you for the prodigals that return through the gospel ministry of their parents. Thank you for the successful witnessing opportunities that are taken as people share Christ with their co-workers. Thank you for the redemption that takes place as parents pray at the bedside of their children. Thank you for the deathbed confessions as a result of the tireless work of a pastor that you use to minister to a person in the latest stages of their life. Thank you for saving, for healing, for redeeming. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people that have filled this room this morning. And on their behalf, God, I ask that you would mobilize us to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, whether that means geographically or otherwise, to take this message to those who need to hear it, regardless of the cost regardless of what other people might think when they hear that we had them over to our house for dinner, regardless of the scoffing comments or the wandering eyes, let us be joyful and glad to pay that price so that some might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would use us in this way. Make us into a people that see this as our primary and ultimate mission, a way of life, our biggest concern, that which fills the majority of our prayers. Build your church. Bring sons and daughters into your family. Save those that might be in our midst in this moment who don't know you. Open their eyes to the truth 
Allow them to respond in faith. Move them by the prodding of your spirit to confess Jesus is Lord. Make this the day of salvation for anyone here who needs to come to you. And move forward, God. Travel the roads that we will travel. Prepare the conversations that you will lead us into having. And grant us the obedient spirit and the humility to go wherever your leading takes us. And continue to make the church into the image you desire. And God, prevent us, get in our way every time we attempt to make it into our own image. March on, God, and cause us to march with you in this ministry of reconciliation. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, the name above all names, the only name through which salvation can be found, the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.